Hey folks, my name is Mason. Welcome to the podcast. Today we are talking to Alex Staniforth, uh, who back in 2014 and 2015 uh, was climbing Everest. And uh, yeah, it, it's crazy. If you know anything about Everest, those were two years that were some pretty serious avalanches. Uh, so at 18 years old, Alex tried this. And by the way, this episode's from 2016. Uh, Travis was hosting this episode, and so he's going to tell us about, Alex is going to tell us about his experience on Everest dealing with avalanches twice um, in the book that he wrote thereafter. So pretty wild story. Alex uh, dealt with epilepsy as, as a child and has a stammer as a result of it. And so like many kids, he had to deal with a lot of uh, bullying and just uh, really tough stuff that I know a lot of us have dealt with as well. And so just seeing... Um, what he's done since and how he's overcome it and how he's done things like climbing Everest uh, is pretty inspiring. So buckle up, get ready to be inspired. Let's go ahead and jump in. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, Travis. How's it going? It's going great. I thank you for your time and being here. So let's start with a little bit of history on yourself. I mean, you're a young guy, you're 20 now, and you were, you were trying to, to make these attempts as a teenager. That's pretty young to, to try something like Everest. What is it in your, your childhood that drove you so early to, uh, to try something like Everest? How was your upbringing? Were you an adventurous kid from the, from the start or... Yeah, I and mean, basically, you know, I wasn't adventurous. I hated sport. I hated the outdoors. My family weren't really outdoorsy. And I guess I found it by chance. And I was about nine years old when I had epilepsy. And I've not had a seizure now for nine or 10 years. But in itself, it was just, you know, the start of much actually bigger issues when I was a kid. You know, since I've been about four years old, I've actually had a bad stammer in my speech, which comes and goes, you know, actually when the hell it wants, you know. The thing is, I mean, obviously that in itself actually made school pretty hard for me, you know, pretty stressful. I was badly bullied pretty much throughout every single day at school. I didn't have any confidence, mental health problems. You know, it was a pretty hard time. And basically, I think I was about 14 when I, re- I was actually on holiday when I was trying paragliding. And I just had this sort of strange urge. I don't really know where it came from. But basically, I decided that I wanted to try this extreme sport, you know, where I would throw myself off a 7,000-foot peak. And it was just weird. This urge just came from nowhere. You know, that just completely changed my life because then I realized, you know, I could uh, achieve things. I could push myself. I could overcome things. And I guess from then on, I just wanted to try and find, you know, what could I overcome next? I mean, after the epilepsy and the stammering and the bullying and everything else, I guess, you know, the outdoors became my way of sort of, you know, proving myself wrong and proving all the bullies wrong. And I guess all the confidence came back to me after all those years. And so from then on, I just wanted to try more and more extreme sports in the outdoors and trying to push myself more and more. And I recall being invited hill walking in, in the Lake District, you know, uh, in Britain. And uh, I just recall being sat there and I asked my friend, the stepdad, you know, where is Everest? I didn't know anything about it. I didn't even know where it was. I didn't even know where it just, you know, I didn't even know where it came from. This thing just randomly popped into my head. But that would inspire me to go home and, you know, and search online or find out more about it. And I remember seeing a picture of Everest and, straight away being captivated it just seemed like the biggest thing that I could overcome the biggest thing that I could achieve and I knew I wanted it more than anything I just could never have imagined I'd have been standing at Everest Base Camp just four years later so that's it really I'm, I'm definitely not a an outdoors you know I, I definitely start in the outdoors it's just been a, a way for me of trying to overcome adversity really and trying to inspire other people 
Wow, that's great. You know, so it's not. Uh, I guess you couldn't really find a way to to overcome, you know, this epilepsy and stammer. But you've discovered this this almost unconquerable mountain, and you just, you know something just triggered. It was just a matter of yeah, yeah, like, sure. hey, yeah. you know, I'm going to go conquer this because this truly is, you know, the biggest thing in the world when it comes to to mountain climbing to conquer. And that's a that's pretty. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's kind of a strange story, and thing is, it's not really, it's not really gone how expected. But you know, I'm still learning, I'm still growing, and I'm, I still have my stammer. I, but the thing is, now because of Epstein, I now get paid to stand up and speak, and I've got a book out. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's worked out really cool, actually. Yeah, that's awesome. So, what is it like leading up to? to making your attempt at Everest. Um, obviously we, we talked about, you know, some preparations that you made, but take us through the, the, the experience of getting ready and then the travel over there and, and getting to base camp itself. I mean, a lot of us, obviously we, we know of Everest, but we don't really know what it takes to actually even get to the base camp to, before you can even start your ascent. Yeah, you know, I think I've obviously learned a lot, from, you know, my experiences. I think the first time around, I, I certainly wasn't particularly happy with my sort of, you know, my shape. I don't think I, do, I don't think I was really done enough. And last year, I felt I had. Um, you know, when I was actually fourteen. Since then, I mean, I was on Everest when I was eighteen. So, you know, in four years, I guess I've had to cram in a lot of stuff into a short time. I think I normally Everest is done after years and years of experience, you know, and lots and lots of peaks and. I think it's when I was about 17 when I climbed the first sort of major peak, which is Mont Blanc. And then obviously, you know, that's that's about 4,800 uh, 4, meters. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's quite high. But that was just another start then because the thing is, you know, actually from there in 2012, my next sort of step on the journey was to try a 7,000 meter peak on Burunsi uh, in the Himalayas and Mera Peak, which is about 6,400 meters. So that for me was my sort of major experience prior. And of course, you know, lots and lots of stuff in Scotland because there's no place quite like it it's just completely wild and it's you know it's well known to be one of the best places you know for Everest prep because it just kind of forces you to kind of you know care for yourself and to be out there in the pain and just sort of suffer really because Everest of course it's I guess really it's a case of being able to suffer for a long period of time um I'm, I, of course you know I mean I'm doing lots of stuff I mean on the bike and in the gym and but really I mean I think what's you know you know, but I think what's sort of most important, you know, is time out of the mountains. That is absolutely essential. So really in the build up, um, it's pretty full on because it's not just the training, it's the fundraising. I mean, Everest is pretty expensive and I spent nearly a year and a half working on it full time, almost as a job, you know, just trying to train and find the money. Um and basically in the weeks prior, you know, it's kind of big hill days and big bike rides and just getting to the point where you've got nothing left to give. Um but I was injured from running for about a year and a half. So basically, before my first expedition in the Himalayas, I was pretty unfit for the challenge I had ahead of me. I, you know, I'd only just come back to kind of hard training about six months prior. So I wasn't in the best shape. I just had to do what I could, um, you know, in a short space of time, really. And I was doing a lot more, sort of actually better specific stuff, stuff in the Alps and then the huge hill walks and hill challenges and large multi-day endurance stuff. And that, that was what I think really made a big difference. So getting to the base camp in and of itself, um, you have a, a quite a bit of a, a trek to get there, don't you? Um, yeah, I mean, both times, I mean, our actually expedition operator, Tim, um, I think his schedule was kind of different to most uh, other expeditions. We took about three weeks to walk into base camp from Lukla, which is quite a long time. Normally it's done in 10 to two, you know, 10 days to two weeks. 
the thing is then, you know, by sort of actually early April, a lot of expeditions are kind of sat at base camp, actually bored, I mean, actually having actually bad altitude headaches. So it's, it's much better to kind of go in sort of smaller steps and smaller altitude gains and, you know, just kind of, you know, just kind of go really, really slowly so you get to base camp in really good shape. Um, but the trek itself I didn't find particularly challenging. I mean, obviously, the, on the first expedition, we didn't get higher than base camp. You know, I'd obviously trained for actually heading actually much higher. Um, but I don't find the base camp trek particularly difficult. But I know, for, but of course, you know, it's 5,300 meters. And for a lot of people, it's, it's an Everest in itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in out here in Colorado, we're pretty proud of getting to, you know, up over 14,000 feet. Yeah, and, I bet. <laughs> you know, you're getting, you know, 15,000 feet just to just to get to the start. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ascent. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, sure. Very cool. So on the first attempt, you you made it to base camp and you had just had you just decided that you weren't really ready to try and make the ascent up Everest or what stopped you on that first try? Um, basically a day before we arrived at base camp, um, I think it was the 17th of April, uh, sorry, no, the 18th of April, um, there was a major avalanche in the Kumbu Icefall and this one was just, I mean, you know, it just happened by chance, but sadly it killed 16 climbing Sherpas who were heading up to camp one. Although that in itself shouldn't have, you know, it shouldn't have cancelled our attempt. Basically what happened then was a pretty long and complex story where a political motive pretty much hijacked, you know, the whole tragedy and the loss of 16 lives. And basically, you know, I think it's I mean, a small number pretty much indoctrinated all the others. And basically there were a small number who held the others on ransom, basically saying that if they helped us climb, they would be hurt. And basically they refused to climb. You know, we didn't realize at the time that this event was actually them trying to get the government to try and get more insurance and more payment. But basically they had to do that by stopping us, by by biting the hands, you know, that feed them. And that was what was, you know, and that turned into a huge shame because most of the Sherpas wanted to work and climb as normal. And as a result, of course, you know, didn't get paid because it was the first year where pretty much no expeditions reached the top uh, on the south side because pretty much all the expeditions cancelled and went home after a week. So it was, it, was, it was a real mess. It was a horrible, you know, it was a horrible, horrible experience. And basically after a week, we had, you know, we didn't have much choice but to pack up and head home. So we didn't actually get any higher than base camp in the first year because of, you know, the avalanche. But in itself, it, it wasn't, you know, you know, it wasn't on the avalanche. It was just everything else, you know, happened as, you know, as a result, really. So that was what happened the first year. Yeah, so that's just bad timing, unfortunately. And it's got to be tough on the, the Sherpas that want to work at the same time because they're trying to feed their family on this income. That's the most sort of frustrating thing is, you know, the thing is, you know, is they basically hurt their own kind. And it just it just seemed a really kind of ridiculous sort of situation, really. Um, but of course, you know, you know, in 2015 was another avalanche. But this was, of course, for an entirely different reason. So where were you when this on the second attempt uh, in 2015, when the bigger avalanche, or I should say the the avalanche that killed more people? Where were you? Um, in that area, because this one rolled through base camp and 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 really caused havoc. Well, I was heading up to Camp One for the first time, so our team, apart from obviously you know apart from staff at base camp, you know, I headed up from base camp that that day. So we literally only left base camp a few hours earlier. So when the earthquake struck, I mean, the thing is, I didn't actually feel it. I was so tired that day that I never even felt the ground shaking. You know, that obviously started not just one avalanche. I mean, of course, it, you know, the avalanche you know, in base camp was the, was the most catastrophic, but there were avalanches all over the place. And I was about half an hour away from camp one. So I was, I was probably about 5,900 meters. 
you know, if we info, that's about the same height as my Kilimanjaro. Um, most of my team were already ahead of me. I was just at the top of the icefall. I'd got over all the sort of steeper sections. I was just plodding along on the rope on my own. There was two of my team probably half an hour behind me and some ahead of me. Because it was such a horrible day in the fog and in the mist and the snow that I couldn't see maybe more than 20 metres in front of me. So I was pretty much completely on my own, you know, plodding along and focusing on one step at a time. And that was, of course, when I heard this huge crack, the sound of obviously ice breaking off the mountain, and then this distant, distant roar coming at me from above like an express train. And that was when I sort of felt, okay, this, 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 this is serious. I'm in trouble because I know, of course, that's a, that you know, this big avalanche is coming straight towards me, and I'm near enough where the guys died in the avalanche to that, you know, 2014. When you were thinking about doing avalanche and preparing it for it, did you really have a sense of the danger? I mean, did you? Was this a real option uh, that that this could be happening to you when you were preparing for it, or was it a bit of an awakening? The avalanche, you mean? Right. Yeah. I mean, basically, um, it was surreal. I mean, I, I was so tired, you know, from the altitude. I mean, the thing is, that day we had heavy packs on because you know we got gear and supplies, obviously bringing them up to Camp One. Um, so it was pretty hard going. I suffered all day and. I knew I was nearly there. I was just focusing on arriving at camp and having a rest, you know. And I think when I heard this sound, I mean, I didn't really, oh, oh yeah, I guess I, I, sort, I, I sort of panicked, you know. I realized I'm in trouble. And especially as this noise is coming at me from above, like an express train, like a big primal roar. But I can't, the thing is, I can't see it because of the fog. <laughs> so I can, I can hear this thing coming at me from the west shoulder of Everest on my side, but I can't see a thing. And I think that was probably worse. So I remember just, suddenly having more energy than I felt all day and I could feel my heart pounding through to the floor and I think I just remember thinking I need to get out of the way as soon as possible but of course at that altitude you can't run and on all sides I've got these massive 300 foot drops you know in the glacier and you know I'm just trying to kind of move as fast as I can thinking that I may I may escape the path but I do recall like after maybe a minute or so this this roaring noise is just like just like it doesn't stop. I just remember calming down and presuming that I've escaped. I mean, I wasn't quite there. I was a little bit dazed, but I just remember I, I kept stopping to look to my left, trying to work out where it's going to come from. And of course I'm on my own. There's nobody I can speak to. Um, I kind of thought, should I kind of, you know, should I stay on the rope? Should I unclip? I mean, what's the best, you know, what's the best chance of survival? But I remember feeling quite calm and I sort of assumed that I must've escaped because it should have hit me by now. And then the air pressure suddenly changes and it just hits me with this whack. And like in like a millisecond, I just for the first time in my life accepted, this is it. This is how I die. You know, it's all over. And the most sickening feeling of, of pure fear. I mean, I'm not prepared for it. It was just the most surreal shock feeling of pure fear like I can never describe. I mean, it all happens so fast. I mean, I'm just engulfed by this thing and... I guess any second I just expect it to go black. I expect, you know, I'm just going to be so I buried and that's it. You know, I'm never going to see my family again. And how can I put them through this? And I'm thinking about all sorts of things. And I just think, you know, you idiot, how can you, you know, how can you do this to your parents and everybody else? And I just expect it's going to go black and I'm going to be left up here forever. And then I'm trying to fight this thing and I'm engulfed by like this, you know, you know, just by white in all directions. I can't breathe from the snow going down my throat and I'm just kind of wondering when it's going to go black, you know, and I can't hear anything, but it's deafening wind probably coming through 100 miles an hour, you know, just sort of knock me down on my knees and I'm trying to 
stand up and punch and kick and swim thinking if I'm swept away, you know, I've got a better, I've got a better chance of survival. But after maybe a minute or so, it just, it just stops, you know, the snow just falls ground, falls to the ground and the wind just falls silent. I just, I look down and I'm covered in snow, like some sort of, you know, some sort of snowman. And I'm just, just cannot believe I'm alive. I mean, that I knew what had happened, but I didn't waste a second. It, it, I just shot off to, to camp as soon as I could. It was all shock, really. And I think even today, I can still picture that feeling of just being completely helpless. You know, it's I can't really describe it. It's all I can say, really. It's not the actual death that we fear. It's the it's the feeling of uh, letting our family down, I guess, you know, it's like, how could I have done this to my family? It's not so much. How could I have put myself in this position to potentially lose my life? And that's how I always imagine it. But for you to hear you say it, you walked through it. Um, and then, and that's the experience you had. That's pretty crazy that we think that way. It was crazy. I mean, I think just, it was, it was a surreal feeling like I never had. I mean, I think all of us have been really scared, but this was like nothing else. I mean, when you genuinely accept death and, at my age, you know, I think, how can this be happening? I remember feeling that, but it's all a bit, a bit of a blur to me now. I think the thing is, you know, pretty much everybody on the mountain was hit by an avalanche, but it was just powder. Of course, obviously, base camp was was just full of rock and ice, and that's why, of course, it just caused all the damage and death. But the thing is, you know, I've never been avalanche before. And when you hear that thing coming towards you, you don't know it's a powder avalanche. You just think it's going to bury you. And it was basically just a big blast of snow pretty harmless but as I said you know when it's coming towards you you just don't know when it's going to stop and I pretty much stayed standing in the same place you know it, I wasn't going to swept away or anything as I expected I would be but as I said when when it's coming at you like that you just it, it, it's just a shock and it wasn't only me I mean thing is you know I then caught up with two guys in my team who you know who are much older and stronger and experienced than I was you know one of them was 60 and these guys were just like shaking, you know, they were like hugging each other and they was crying and all sorts. And plus one guy, I mean, the thing is you know, he was obviously higher up and you know, thing is, you know, I think all of us had just been hit by blasts that had obviously been obviously knocked down by the earthquake, you know, but the avalanche had come down so fast with such force that it smashed up his glasses. And, you know, the thing is it come that fast that it just actually wiped them out clean, which just says that even though it's powder, it's still pretty powerful stuff, you know, and, Basically, when we caught up with them, all the ropes had been buried. And, of course, we can't can I move any further because, of course, you know, you know, because all the routes to Camp 1, there's crevasses everywhere. Um, and then we can see one of the first tents through the fog. It's just completely flattened. And, you know, all the climbers are trying to, like, trying to sort of find stuff and help out. And then I guess our first thought was, is anybody going to be alive up here? You know, are all the tents buried? Um, but in the fog, we, we, we couldn't see anything. And... I'll just add on uh, on that note, I mean, basically, two of our team who were already at Camp 1 came down uh, on a short rope and obviously found us. Um, however, I didn't realise at the time until I was told by one of my team that they were uh, on a search mission. However, they weren't trying to find me. They were trying to find the two guys who were about half an hour ahead of me. Um, and basically, they'd already agreed that because I was so far behind the others that I either couldn't have survived or wouldn't survive the night. You know, and that's pretty hard to take. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you hear that, but even now, I mean, obviously, sat here, you know, like almost, a, you know, almost, a, almost ten months later, it still sends, sends, kind of, it just, you know, it still puts the hairs up on my arms, you know. I'll never forget that those words either. Yeah, that really puts things into perspective for you, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. Hey folks, I want to give a shout out to our newest sponsor, The Bourbon Pursuit. It's a podcast all about bourbon, the craft of bourbon. And you might be thinking, you know, I'm I'm a fan of bourbon, I like bourbon, but I'm not I don't love bourbon. Well, this show's probably going to change that. What I've learned is that even things I don't feel like I'm interested in, if someone can explain it to me why it's interesting or what the craft behind it is, I find myself getting more and more interested in it. And I could absolutely see bourbon being one of those things. Uh, as you know, I work for a non-alcoholic brewery, but I, you know, I still enjoy a good alcoholic drink. Not not much. You know, I'm a busy guy, so I can't drink too much. But I do enjoy a good bourbon. Um, when we got married. My wife and I got some bourbon as a gift, and I just had never considered it till then, and and I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Uh, but since, it's kind of just fallen off. Life's gotten busy. But I am excited to learn more through the Bourbon Pursued podcast. They are the official podcast of bourbon and the best source of all bourbon news, reviews, uh, interviews with CEOs, distillers, ambassadors for, for, for the industry. They are where you go to get news and interesting information about bourbon. So join the hosts, Kenny Coleman, Ryan Cecil, and Fred Minnick on an epic bourbon adventure. You can subscribe and follow them wherever you get podcasts. And I can't thank them enough for supporting a fellow creator like me. Uh, And they're just, you know, a couple people working on a show just like me. So if if you want to support them and thank them for what they're doing uh, for Adventure Sports Podcast, go check out bourbon pursuit that is plenty of that for now let's get back into the episode i assume there's radio communication between camps um yeah how did you first learn that the that base camp had been hit so hard and and people actually did perish well the thing is it was all it was all really weird because i never even knew about an earthquake until i got in my tent and you know a guy on my team kind of asked me about it. i was like what earthquake and he's like didn't you feel it i was like no um but basically at camp one they literally felt that all the glacier was going to like fall off the mountains you know it shook that badly um and there's a guy on my team who's been in the army and he said he's never felt so close to death before as that you know and that really brings it home but basically I just recall, you know, we kind of got kind of, you know, we got roped up and we kind of walked into camp and, out, you know, the tents were okay. You know, I'm not sure how many tents were at camp one. There was quite a lot, but the only ones that were damaged were the ones actually right at the start of camp. I remember coming up and all of our team, there was about 12 or 13 of us, and I remember us being kind of crowded around the tents just trying to work out what was going to do. I was just shaking through, I think, from cold because, you know, all the snow had gone down uh, into my clothes and, you know, uh, all over me really. And I just remember Rob, one of the guides on our team, you know, he got on the, he got on the radio and I just remember hearing Henry, our base camp manager. And, he, you know, he's, you know, he's very well known in Everest. He's, you know, he's been doing trips there for decades now. In fact, he was, in fact, he was the guide for Bear Grylls back in 98, I think it was, which is pretty cool. Um, and Henry, you know, he's a, he's a tough old ox, you know, he's the sort of guy who doesn't show a lot of emotion. And I just remember on the radio, um, Rob kind of calling down, asking if it was okay. Because the thing is, we didn't know anything about an avalanche at base camp. And I just remember Henry in his voice, the panic, just saying, it's chaos, it's destroyed, everything's gone, everything's gone. And we're all like shocked. We're just trying to like picture in our minds how base camp can be gone. You know, we didn't, you know, we're just, you know, you know, has it kind of 
fall into a crack in the earth as it, we, we, we just couldn't picture in our minds and we, we never even thought, thought an avalanche could hit base camp. We just, we just can't work it out. And all of us, I remember us crowding around and just some of us just shaking our heads, some people crying, some people just looking stunned. You know, base camp, you know, like our home has gone, but we don't know where's it gone. And Henry just sounded completely in the panic. Um, and of course, we're up at camp one, completely, completely unaware of what's happening below. And, and equally, you know, they think that, you know, if they've been avalanched, well, how are we, you know, how are we alive? Because, of course, you know, we are, you know, because in the Western Coombe, we've got two huge mountain walls on either, you know, on either side, which will just dump a load of snow on us, which they did. Um, so there was a lot of panic all over the place. Uh, it wasn't until that, that night that um, I remember hearing on the radio outside. Um, then we learned that three of our Sherpa were dead. I just remember hearing somebody scream. Um, and I just remember lying there in my tent, just the, the words just going through my mind like a bad dream, you know, just trying to, just disbelief, just, just disbelief at what's happening. Uh, I think that was the first we knew of it. But I think I remember in the first night thinking of all my friends at base camp and all the people who were in the ice fall below us, you know, we didn't know who'd been hit, hit worse. I mean, it's straight after, you know, the avalanche. I mean, I, I fought straight away with my team behind me. I mean, you know, my guy, Tim and, and Ellis, my friend, they were actually behind me. And I assumed that because I'd been further past on the ice cliffs, you know, the hanging seracs that I thought that I just kind of had a close escape and that they were gone. I do recall at the time I got on the radio straight away and tried to call them and there was no response. And I remember, you know, swearing and shouting at the thing, you know, you, you, you know, I just assumed that they weren't answering because 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 they were dead, and I just remember thinking there's nothing I can do for them. I just have to get my, myself to safety as soon as I can. Um, and then I heard them speaking on the radio to each other, and that was when I knew everybody was okay. Uh, it was when we heard about base camp that we were just. To be honest, I, it's it's all a blur to me now, and I think even at the time it was just we just couldn't picture what happened, and I remember. I remember one of the guides coming in and asking, you know, do we know if a person had survived? And this was one guy who'd been just behind me in the, you know, in the ice fall. And that was when it really hit home. You know, what happened to all those people behind us? There's like 400 people at the base camp. And that was when we just, we just lost, you know, it was, it was panic. And until we got down to base camp, we had no idea what to expect really. So for you, it was just a matter of, of good timing. You could have been down in that camp with those people. We left that morning about five, six in the morning, quite early. Uh, so we left about six hours before it happened. But the thing is, it was kind of a miracle because most of the expedition teams that were on the mountain that day, there was ourselves, there was, you know, there was a team of Gurkhas, there was Madison Mountaineering, I think, based in Washington, and, you know, Alan Arnett from Colorado, one of your own, and, you know, he was obviously part of Madison. Um, there was them, there was Jackie Globe. Um, and actually, no, they were at base camp. Um, there was Summit Climb, who, as you know, actually based in the States, uh, Damazur, there were quite a lot of big teams, uh, adventure consultants, and all these teams were on the mountain that day. And of course, ours in Himalayan guides, about 13, 14 of us. And basically, the Avalanche Base Camp, you know, it released a big section off Pomori, which is a big 7,000 meter peak on the side of Base Camp. The thing is, Base Camp's never been hit by an avalanche before. And that's why all of us couldn't get our heads around how it could have gone. Um, but the reason, of course, you know, all the people died was because, you know, you know, the avalanche there was full of rock and ice and debris, you know, picked up at 
such an incredible speed that you know kind of came down like a skyscraper of of you know of rock and snow and ice like a tsunami and of course you know in the fog people hadn't seen it till the very last minute and now in the kind of central area of base camp was the most directly hit because you know teams on the far side had literally got a bit of powder you know and actually carried on having lunch you know completely unaware that like half a mile away well in fact not even that far away other teams have just been completely wiped out by the rock and the snow um and our team was pretty much in the the worst hit camp of every team on the mountain so basically it was just a pure miracle that we that you know all of us and we're all that day if we hadn't have been there would have been probably another 30, 40 people killed. And we lost three of our Sherpas at base camp, Pasang Temba, Kumar and Tenzing. And we lost, you know, and there was two guys who were actually badly injured. Now, most of the deaths that happened at base camp were in the team next to us. There was an American guy who died in summit climb just behind us. And pretty much all the teams to the left and right of us. Now, when I found my tent, uh, it was buried under a foot of hard snow and rock. It was like literally torn like a piece of paper. Our mess tent, where we, the thing is, you know, that was a solid steel frame where we ate our meals. Now, bear in mind, you know, the earthquake happened about just before 12. You know, if we'd been at base camp, we would have been in our own tent, so we would have been in the mess tent. But the mess tent was literally, you know, was literally thrown 100 foot vertically in the air and then just slammed down about 25 meters away into the next camp, just like a kind of a paper airplane, you know? And I think when we found our tents, because everything had li- literally gone, I mean, our camp as we knew it had just been ripped to shreds. You know, there was nothing left of it. Um, we knew that he- we would have been dead as well. I mean, there was no chance we could have survived. Most of us would have died if we hadn't left base camp that morning. And that for me is probably the hardest thing to take. You know, the- those guys were just doing their jobs at base camp and had their hopes and dreams taken away in a flash, you know, when we were spared by a matter of hours. Yeah, you think that you know the the people at base camp are the ones that are in a safe position. Yeah, exactly. I, exactly. I imagine they're placing base camps, you know, in the, in the, or the camps in areas where they're least vulnerable, and it's the guys that are actually up on the ropes that are ones that are that are vulnerable. And then to have it reversed like that is is insane. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was just completely reversed, and it's it's just it's just surreal. I mean, you know, of course, you know, you know most people who died were, as I said, in the central area, um, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it was like a war zone. I mean, we obviously we came down and just, you know, certain parts were unscathed and the rest was just wiped out. I mean, there's everything from shoes to spades and everything just scattered all over the place and stuff a lot more gory. And um, my tent, I found a massive boulder inside it. I mean, I found my kit bag, which had been left by my bed that morning. And that was like a solid nylon bag, you know, like an outdoors sort of, you know, sort of a gear bag. And that had been hit by a rock at such speed that it literally pierced a hole clean in the side. And you just sort of think if that had hit my head, well, I'd have been a goner, you know? Right. Right. Well, the, uh, the destructive potential and the energy behind avalanches is just, it's purely unreal. It's unfathomable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell me about what it. kind <laughs> of preparation avalanche training did you have going into this? I mean, I can't imagine any preparation would really truly prepare you for what you witnessed, but did, did what you have help at all? Or did you feel like it was just kind of like up to luck at that point? Um, in terms of preparation, I mean, no, I mean, as, uh, as you say, you can't really prepare for, you know, for Himalayan avalanche. I mean, of course, you know, in the Alps of Scotland, you know, it, it's the avalanche forecast and it's, you know, it's taking care on the kind of choice of routes and 
that's you know that's where experience and skills you know there are lots of ways to actually minimize actually not avalanche you know actually risk the thing you know the icefall you know is of course you know is really you know the only actually place you know where avalanches can really occur uh and as of course you know, it happened in 2014 but the only thing i really sort of knew in terms of preparation is just to kind of punch the air and swim and kick you know trying obviously i just stay afloat you know if you're kind of swept away there's more chance of an airspace and survival the only real things that you can really do to minimize that risk is to leave for, uh, early in the morning while the ice is obviously colder and more stable and also move as fast as you can in the icefall you know to obviously get out of harm's way um of course at base camp of course that's never happened before nobody could have prepared for that yeah yeah i'm sure so let's get into the book a little bit um speaking of icefall you named it icefall um why did you name it that Yes, the thing is, I mean, after my first expedition, I signed my book deal with Coventry House Publishing, who are actually based in Ohio over there. Um, and basically at the time, that book was going to be called One Mountain After Another, you know, just I guess that sort of stands for uh, all the obstacles faced. And it's not just the physical mountains, but it's all the kind of mountains in terms of all the obstacles. But the thing is, there's lots of books on Everest and reaching the top. And basically, um, after you know, the earthquake and, you know, and the disaster in 2015, um, I remember actually walking out of base camp and straight away, I mean, I sort of thought, well, you know, is my book actually happening still? Um, because, of course, I've not reached the top. But actually, as I said, you know, there's lots of books on Everest, but there's not, but there's no books currently out where I've been involved in the two biggest Everest disasters in history. Um, and so Icefall literally just came to me into my head just, again, just kind of by chance, just out of nowhere, which can happen a lot, really, which is you know, cool. Um, and the Icefall is, of course, where the avalanches happened both in 2014 and last year. But actually it means more than that because in the ice fall, I guess it sort of shows actually no matter how hard you, you work and how much you actually give, you know, uh, our ambitions and dreams can come actually falling down at any moment because, you know, it owes us nothing and what matters is how we get back on our feet again. So I think ice fall has that meaning of just, you know, things can come actually falling down and crash and burn, you know, but the important thing is how you respond to that. And I guess that's what my story has been about has been, adversity and just coming back stronger you know and i guess that's where the that's where the that's where the name comes from so your book icefall was just launched yesterday on march 9th tell people where they can find it well it's now on amazon uh both in ebook and paperback versions so amazon you know is probably the sort of best place to be um it will also be in main bookstores both in britain and in the and in the states as well so yeah i mean i really hope people enjoy what should be an inspiring read and I'm really pleased because it's been endorsed by Bear Grylls as well, uh, which is pretty cool. Plus, any signed books that I sell over here uh, in Britain, I'm also fundraising for a charity in Nepal called Moving Mountains, which obviously helps Nepal just build after the earthquake as well. What inspired you? I mean, obviously, it was it was the events that happened and the Sherpas that had died to do it. But what got you motivated to to do this charity work? I think when I found the outdoors, I mean, at the same time, I, you know, I started fundraising and I think it's just, uh, you know, it's really fulfilling that I can make a difference at the same time as achieving my own potential, you know, trying to explore and push my own limits and make a difference. And you know, in the past few five years, normally outdoor adventures, I've now raised over £34,000 for all sorts of causes, uh, including Nepal, uh, cancer and endangered animals as well. And I think for me, it's so rewarding that I can, you know, give something back really. Oh, that's impressive. Good for you for doing that as well. Yeah, thank you. Through all of these experiences on Everest, how does your family deal with it? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, of course, you know, I've got their support. You know, it's hard for them actually understanding it and, 
you know, understanding why I wanted to take these risks and go back, you know, and it puts them through a lot, but they know this is what I'm passionate about and they know that they wouldn't stop me or, um, I think, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think obviously next time we're even more nerve wracking, but I don't think that they would stop me. I think, um, when I was at camp one, I mean, I'm, you know, I called home and, you know, a lot of my sat phone and kind of told mum there'd been a big avalanche and to try and sort of stay calm, which didn't get on very well. But yeah, you know, they are supportive and I'm really fortunate for that. Well, that's good. So you say next time, and of course that was my next question. Are you planning on uh, making another attempt? Well, the cat's out the bug now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Everest has been such a big part of my life for so long that I, I couldn't just kind of you know, uh, abandon it. I mean, I've come close to it in the past, but you know, I've given, I've given and lost so much and worked so hard to get there. I think that if I never found out for sure, it would just kind of like eat away at me really. So I will be going back at some point. Um, not this year, of course I need a break. Um, in the autumn, I am actually back in the Himalayas, not on Everest, but on a different peak on expedition. However, that's kind of be kept to minimal perhaps for now. However, you know, I should follow my journey and, of course, I should find all the updates. But I will be back in the Himalayas. And in the meantime, I'll be speaking and fundraising and doing all sorts of things, really. But I don't tend to stop. You know, this is what I try and do. And I'm always trying to make a difference and inspire people. And oh, Very cool. Uh, it's got to be a tough balance. You know, you've you've definitely dealt with tragedy and, and, and your family has gone through all of the, the worry and concern. But sure. you can't just throw something away just because of that. You also have to follow your dreams as well. And I completely get you know, as much as you've been through on Everest, it's, it's, I can imagine, how is it, you know, how can you walk away from that? It's, it's almost like you, you need to finally conquer it, you know, just to, to finish that chapter in your, in your life. Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, when I do get there and I say when, cause it will happen one day, I think it's, uh, it will taste all the sweeter. You know, I think it's, it's not been a, a straightforward journey, but nothing worth fighting for ever is. So, uh, you know, it's going to, be quite an emotional moment, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got that right. So it's a very sad story, uh, of course. Um, do you have a more enlightening tale to tell <laughs> us about your, uh, really any adventure that you've been on? And it could be part of Everest or it could be something else as well, but something that was, uh, you know, inspirational or a, a fun story that came out of some of these. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, until now, it's all been kind of kind of actually black and horrible stuff. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, I, I guess I've not really been to many places yet. I mean, I mean, obviously, in my age and stuff, I've not really had such a chance. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, I've had some great adventures. And I think uh, actually being in Nepal itself is an amazing experience. Until things, you know, turn wrong, I, I had some great experiences. One challenge in particular, which I kind of did in, uh, which I did in a build-up near Everest, was cycling from Chester to Chamonix in the French Alps. So that was about 880 miles cycling in eight days, completely on my own, carrying all my own gear, and not really having a clue what I was doing. And I think uh, that itself is adventure in its kind of true form, because you just have to kind of find a way or make one. And this was August 2014, so you know, going back some time now, and. Uh, yeah, I mean that for me is has a lot of happy memories because it was br you know it was brutal at the time. I mean I'm cycling you know after 100 miles a day and plus I mean on the final day I mean especially I cycled 160 miles. Um, and I remember, I mean well, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. You know I mean on like the fourth day I got to France at four in the morning and I was literally, I was literally falling asleep on the bike 
and to the point that I, I woke up a few times actually in a ditch because I literally fall, <laughs> I literally fallen asleep on the bike and just veered off the road. I was going slowly enough that I was unhurt, but I, I, I literally had to lie on a bench for half an hour and just sort of power nap. And that amazingly gave me the strength to cycle 100 miles. But I was just, I've never been so tired before. Now, after then, things went a bit better. But the second day, I mean, basically, my route had completely failed because I used Google Maps, but I used the wrong thing. So it was trying to send me across roads that weren't really there, more kind of sort of fields and footpaths. That, of course, I can't cycle on a road bike with, you know, 10, with, you know, probably 10 kilos of gear on the back. Um, so in the end I had to kind of like make my own route by sort of stopping and, you know, I, you know, like every sort of turn I had to stop and check the map, which obviously I did a lot of time on. So basically I was arriving very, very late and on the final night, I mean, I remember arriving, you know, so tired, I was actually basically hallucinating, you know, and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And despite 130 mile bike ride, the only thing I could get for food after that was a, was a Snickers bar, which is just ridiculous. Of course, you know, on the, you know, on the next day, trying to cycle another 130 miles. Um, and in the end, had, you know, it was meant to be seven days, but I did it in eight because on the second, you know, on that other day, I was just completely wrecked. Um, on the final day, I mean, this was like something like the film Mr. Bean's Holiday. It was just crazy. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I was cycling through the center of a big town in Switzerland. And I recall cycling to a kind of a tram line and being thrown off the bike and being picked up by some police officers. And I was okay. And then I got back on the bike. And then by this point, I ran out of food and water. And I'm just kind of crawling along. And I was so tired that I managed to cycle up this huge pass. And it was, it was dark by this point. It's kind of a, kind of a French forest with all these kind of, like, you know, these kind of like log huts there. And there's none, I'm on my own. I've, I've barely got my phone battery left. I'm out of water. I'm just completely empty. And there's nobody else around you know, to help. Um, and I was only probably 30 miles away from Chamonix. I wasn't far away, but I knew that, well, I, I couldn't find the road. So a lot on the map, you know, I just couldn't work out where to go. Um, and basically I was so tired. I hallucinated that I read a sign in the middle of the road warning me about uh, unexploded mines, which is why would there be a, a, a warning about unexploded mines in the middle of a street in France? <laughs> and why would the sign be uh, in English? But at the time I didn't really realize it was hallucination. Um, and basically in my confusion, I managed to cycle back down the hill that I just spent about half an hour cycling up. And then of course I realized, you know, the only way to get there was to cycle back up this hill. And this time I was so, you know, I was so tired that I just lost my balance and just fell off the road. And literally, I remember lying in the tarmac with the bike on my knee, like blood pouring out my leg and just lying there, just sobbing my heart out, just crying and crying and crying. Just wanted to go and like curl up under, you know, under a tree. But obviously, that uh, on Everest, that's when you need to find the strength to push on. And, you know, I arrived at Chamonix at two in the morning and, it, you know, there's no better feeling. And it just proves that you just got to keep on heading south, you know. And I lost half a stone in weight that week. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's probably one of my kind of happier tales anyway. Uh, it's amazing what the mind, you know, the tricks that the mind yeah, can yeah. play on you in sure, these moments. Sure. But yeah, yeah, that's but, crazy. you know, you know, but on my Epic 7 Challenge, which I did in 2014, you know, I've got lots more moments like that, which are all in the book as well. So, Oh, very cool. I look forward to reading it. Uh, yeah, it should be good. So you were, I was doing a little bit of research on you, and you were actually a uh, torchbearer for the London Olympics in 2012? Yeah, that's right. I was uh, about n nearly four years ago, actually. Ah, that's quite the honor. How did you end up doing that? 
Yeah, I mean, basically, I was nominated because, you know, there was 8,000 places and I was nominated by my friend's mum. It wasn't, I didn't really do a lot. I mean, I really didn't kind of earn it. I mean, basically, all I'd done was my kind of first challenge, was, which was the National Free Peaks Challenge, which involves, you know, the three highest mountains in Britain um, in less than 24 hours. And, you know, I mean, at the time, it was a pretty big step for me. I mean, I was, of course, actually, now it isn't, but that obviously led to me doing all this. And I raised £1,800 for charity at the time. And nowadays, that's nothing much to me. But, you know, bear in mind all my kind of past adversity and problems. I think she felt that was worthy of it, you know, you know, you know. And of course, I was chosen for that, which is obviously, which is, which is crazy, really. Yeah, that's very cool. Very cool. Well, you are only 20 years old and you have led an adventurous lifestyle <laughs> that so many people can merely dream of um, <laughs> and imagine. You know, I really want people to be able to go find out more about you. So what uh, social media links are best or, or website are best for people to go visit? And I'll put those in the show notes. Yes, please do. Um, uh, on my tweets, I'm at Alex underscore Stanleyforth. That's S-T-A-N-I-F-O-R-T-H. Uh, or Facebook is facebook.com slash Alex Adversity. Um, and again, on Instagram, you know, and all that sort of stuff as well. But the best place will be to go uh, on my site, uh, alexstanleyforth.com. And on there, there's links for my book. There's links for my charity. There's links to my, you know, there's links to my tweets, my Facebook, my Instagram, and all that sort of thing. So probably best to go to uh, com, and find out more about my expeditions and my journey really well great well I'll definitely get those in the show notes and I'll also put the link to your book on Amazon again That'd like I said I'm, I'm really excited to read it um, the little yes. bits of information you gave us on this show is just uh, it's it really gets me to to want to go check out the rest of the story so Alex so. that's great yeah that's great <laughs> absolutely thanks so much for spending some time and, and sharing your story and it uh yeah it thank you very much thank tr you truly is inspirational to uh to everyone in the adventure world so i do appreciate it yeah thank you very much and that's been great all right good deal take care cheers first of all thank you so much for listening it means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show if you'd like to help us further you can leave a review on itunes share us with your friends your family it goes a long way to grow in the show you can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>